0: om shanno mitra sham maruna shanno indro brahaspati shanno vishnu namo brahmane namaste vayo twameva pratyaksham tvameva pratyaksham brahmavadishyame ritam vadishyame satyam vadishyame tanmaam avatu tadbhattaram avatu vaktaram om shantisha shanti shanti Om Sahana Vabatu Sahana Vabhu Sahana Karavahai Svinavadhi Tamastuma vidvishāvahai Om Shanti, shanti Om Purnamadab purna vidam purnaat purnam udacchate purnasya purhamaanah ya purhameeva va shishyade om shant 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 e shruti smriti purananam palayam karunalayam namah vihagav padam Shankaram Loka Shankaram Shankaram Shankarachayam Keshavam Bhadarayanam Sutrahashyakrtavande Bhagavanta Gunapurah Ishvaro Guru Avivagine The text that we are going to study
1: during this camp is Aparokṣānabhūde. It's a Vedāntic treatise. Or Prakharana treatise It's <coughs> number one gives us the understanding of the basic concepts of Vedanta, the technical terms which are used in Vedanta, number one, and number two, it also gives us in a very short span, the entire vision of the scriptures of Vedānta, <coughs> meaning whatever Vedānta teaches, is all contained in this one text. <coughs> Vedānta means Upanishads, and Upanishads are a part of Veda. Veda, as you know, have two sections, the Karmakānda, and jñāna kanda, the section dealing with karma or the duties and the section then dealing with knowledge. (coughs) The reason why this this sequence is there, that first there is karma or the duties and there is jñāna and the knowledge, is that when one lives a life of duties as prescribed in the scriptures. Then one becomes prepared for jnanam or knowledge. One gains a maturity. As Swami just said, Nasamparaya pratimahati balam pramadhyantam vittamohenam urham. Nasamparaya not pratibhati, that the life has a purpose above and beyond what is evident. What What is evident is this world various objects of pleasure, various achievements and powers and name and fame, all of this is very evident. To some people, even the fact that there is surga or heaven, that there is a life after this, where also you can have immense pleasure, even that also may be evident, that there can be happiness other than what you get from the objects of the world, no doubt the sense objects and Other gratification, sense gratification, the ego gratification, the emotional gratification, all these do give us happiness. And, Ramadhyantam vittamohenamudham, those people who are truly engrossed with wealth and possessions and progeny, spouses, spouses, etc., meaning those who are just absorbed and preoccupied only with this pleasure, means of happiness, they think that this is all that life has to offer. To more, for most people who have not gained the maturity, the idea that life can have something else, it can have a different dimension. It just doesn't occur. For that to occur, one requires a maturity of the mind. And the karma or the life of activity, life of duties, is meant to create this maturity of the mind. <coughs> because living life of duties involves always. Yaga or renunciation, letting go. So unless we let go what we like, as the Swami says, usually a choice in most of the situations between what I like and what is right. So by the word duty we mean what is right in a given situation. In every situation, there is something that is right and proper, and what is right is very often not very convenient. So usually people take the convenient path, the easy path, the path of least resistance, avoiding pain, that's a usual tendency. So doing what is right, very often requires us to put up with pain and hardship, and most people think, why should we do that? However, when there is a commitment to duty, commitment to truth, commitment to values, let us say, that strong commitment alone will enable a person to put up with The hardships and pain that generally accompany living a life of values. So this is the theme of the Karma Kanda or the first section of the Vedas. And if a person does live life like that, it is a life where you are letting go the inferior for the sake of superior. Letting go the gross for the sake of the subtle, letting go the material for the sake of spiritual, letting go the attachment to non-self for the sake of creating attachment with the self. So attachment with non-self, attachment with what is external, we are born with. The legenda of Obani Chatsa is, khāni, vyotanas svambuhu, is made our sense organs and our mind. Extrovert endeavor, all beings have naturally an affinity for seeking gratification from external sources. There is of course a need for gratification. That's a genuine need. Point is, How do we accomplish that gratification? Since living beings are born with an extrovert mind, the immediate tendency is to seek gratification from external means, external pleasures. (coughs) But for living the life of values or dharma, when is to sacrifice that? Because attachment to external things always brings about a tendency to acquire them and enjoy them. For living life of values or duty, I am required, pushed to give up that attachment. This life of duty, life of values calls for giving up the attachment to external things. And then only the attachment for the Self can be discovered. You need to discover the attachment for the Self. Attachment for Ishvara, attachment for knowledge, you need to discover that. And then only that can become my goal and then only I may be willing to do whatever is required to be for fulfilling that objective. So, samparaya, that not only there is external non-self, there is something called self. Not only there is material thing, but there is something called spiritual thing also. That occurs to me, when I live the life of dharma, then slowly my mind is moulded, is purified where this occurs to me. Just then, slowly we discover an attachment for the self, attachment for Ishvara. So we deliberately take up or deliberately practice attachment of values or dharma. So by making a commitment to dharma, doing what is right, I slowly develop the, discover the attachment for the Self. So attachment to dharma is my commitment, which requires me to give the attachment for what I like and what is convenient. An attachment to dharma in course of time enables me to discover the attachment for Self, attachment for (coughs) Ishwara. So that's the scheme. So that's the first phase of life, life of pravṛtti, life of activity, followed by the second phase of life, nivritti a life of contemplation, <coughs> life of the pursuit of knowledge, which requires contemplation upon the statements of the scriptures. So when a contemplation, it means contemplation upon the statements of the scriptures in order to understand the purport of what it is that the scriptures are teaching. (coughs) And that requires the scriptures to be unfolded by, of course, a competent teacher. So the second phase essentially requires this aspirant to go to the teacher, submit himself to the teacher, sit at the feet of the teacher and listen to the unfoldment of the
0: scriptures.
1: (coughs) Scriptures mean the self-understand. So when we say that we want to contemplate upon the statements of the scriptures, it means we want to contemplate upon the self. So it is contemplation of our Self. How do you think of the Self? How do you contemplate upon Self? How do you meditate upon the Self? By contemplating upon the statements of Upanishads, statements of Scripture, because the subject matter of Upanishad is the Self. And therefore, to contemplate our Self requires the contemplation upon the meaning of the statements of (coughs) Upanishads. So that is why we require a teacher. Because I do not have myself the adequate insight or understanding to be able to contemplate upon the Self. (coughs) So this is where the tradition somewhat differs from what we may call the modern scientific view, because this requires cause for an acceptance, that I am alone, not competent to be able to con- contemplate upon the Self, that I require help, that I require help of scriptures, because the subject matter of scriptures is the Self. And they were contemplating upon the statements of such as Tattva Masih, there Thou art, I am am Brahman, Sarum Khaligam, all what there is is Brahman. So this is what is meant by scripture. The statements, the profound statements of scriptures, now they require to be understood. And that is where I require the help of the teacher to understand what truly is the meaning of these statements. Ek meva advidiyam. The truth is one without a second. What does it mean? What is advidyatam? What does non-duality mean? What does limitlessness mean? What does fullness mean? Because these words are also being used in our day-to-day language. We, we already have some kind of notions about what the words mean. Whereas in all probabilities, the scriptures use these words in a meaning which is somewhat different from what we normally understand. So what we understand is vachya, what you understand is vācīyārādham means a literal meaning. However, mostly the scriptures use these words in what we call lakṣārāsā or the implied or targeted meaning. Vachyasa and lakshyasa. Because then I hear the word eternal, let us say, imagine eternal is available, present all time and so imagine Presence at all times. All pervasive. I imagine something all pervasive. This is what we normally do. But no, all pervasive doesn't mean something in the space and something in time. It doesn't mean something in time. Something that transcends the time. All pervasive means something that in the space. It's called Lakshadha. It's quantum jump you know, a quantum jump. Forward what you normally understand to what the true meaning is. This may where require help. This is where help of the teacher who can make us see, who can help us to make this quantum jump and see the meaning of these statements. And Therefore, again, I should have a relationship with the teacher, where my mind is available to openly understand what the teacher is teaching. We will come to that. That called Shuddha or the trust. Now this is where science is a problem, you know. This trust business is a, is a problem. It is true. We accept that this is a different kind of inquiry, investigation than the investigation of science. No question about it. Science does not require trust. Because science deals with what is perceptible and what is inferable. So science deals with protection and what meaning that perceptible. What can what is perceived? And what is inferred from what you perceive. Then the human intellect is adequate. To arrive at the inference, based on what we perceive, the human intellect is adequate. When you perceive a smoke, perceive the smoke, you arrive at the conclusion there is fire, because we have seen the coexistence of smoke and fire. Therefore, when we see the fire, smoke here, we can infer that there must be fire. So, there is one kind of knowledge, which is the knowledge of the objects, which are perceptible. We come to aparokshan, aparokshan. Thus, there are two kinds of things here. Knowledge that we understand, usually the science also understands, is of two kinds, pratyaksha and parokshan. Pratyaksha, what is perceptible? Paroksha, what is not perceptible, what is inferred? So, Pratyaksha means perception. What is the Pratyaksha word? is made of two words, Prati, the prefix, and Aksha. Aksha means sense organs of perception. Prati means each one. Meaning that the knowledge that we gain with reference to, each organ of perception is called projection. So we have five organs of perception, and each one of them is created to perceive or experience their respective object. It's the organ of hearing hears the words, the sound, then touch, then eyes, which perceive the colors and forms, the taste, which perceive the taste and the smell. So there are five kinds of objects in the world and we have five corresponding organs of perception. All of our knowledge comes this way. The knowledge of the objective world comes only from these five organs of perception. And then the mind will work and then inference. Based on what you perceive, inference. Because nobody has ever seen an atom, by the way. Nobody has seen an electron. Or, you know, nobody has seen it. It's all inference. Based on some signals that you get somewhere, we infer what it is, because they are not perceptible things. Therefore, most of the knowledge that we have is all by inference. Most of the knowledge of science is by inference. And therefore, if you have a better inference is reasoning, you perceive something, apply the reasoning to arrive at the inferential conclusion. If tomorrow perception is the same, if tomorrow somebody comes up with a different reasoning, then the conclusion will be different, understand? So Newton says that there is this force of gravity which attracts the objects. Now a scientist says, there is no gravity. What is this space? The space gets, you know, bent in presence of huge masses and so the space gets affected. And that's how the most, most of the particle is, so there's no gravity. have after tomorrow, some else will come, this is fine. That's how it's supposed to be, that's how it must be. So a, a, a true scientist knows that a conclusion can never be final. A conclusion arrived at by, inference can never be final because Inference has its basis in perception. Between perception and inference, there is reasoning. You follow? What you perceive, you apply reasoning to arrive at the conclusion of what you do not perceive. So, paroksha means indirect knowledge. Pratyaksha means direct knowledge. Paroksha means indirect knowledge. There also, akshara comes. So, para and akshara. So, and aksha becomes protection. Para, and aksha becomes Paroksha. Now how that ra becomes, oh, that we have to ask the grammarians, but anyway, that para plus aksha becomes Paroksha. Means what? Means beyond aksha, beyond sense organs. So, protection is that which is within the the range of the sense organs. Paroksha is that which is beyond the range of sense organs. So how do you know those things? By inference. How? Based on what you perceive through reasoning you arrive at what possibly could be there and that is the indirect knowledge. per Sometimes you can verify that per You see the fire right there, I mean, you see the smoke and there were arrived the conclusion, there was a fire. You can go there and verify. But there are certain things which are not perceptible. So fire is perceptible, therefore you can verify your conclusion whether it's fire or not. But eh, 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 a bazan particle is not perceptible. god particle is not perceptible. So it always remains an indirect knowledge. You follow? Nitya paroksha. There is some paroksha or some indirect thing which is available for becoming pratyaksha, which can be verified. But there are many things you can never verify, because they are never objects of perception. They can never become objects of perception. Science all deals with that. And so uh, science deals with that also, put it this way. This is the whole objective thing of which the, uh, most of the sophisticated knowledge is all based on what is nitya paroksha, always imperceptible, always indirect. And never they know that if somebody comes with a better reasoning, the conclusion will change. So science always changing, evolving, you can say. How long will it evolve? It will always evolve. Because our Vedanta says, Brahma Sutra says, Tarka, Tarka means this reasoning. it is It can never have a conclusion. There can be no finality as far as the reasoning is concerned. All it requires is a better reasoning. We are no interest in proving anything. Yes, I am just saying here, Pratyaksha and Paroksha means Whatever. So we are not in uh, competition with anybody. Because science is a different, you know, field of investigation. Vedanta is a different field of investigation. There is no, no meeting point at all. the poor Vedanians feel very apologetic and they want to prove that, oh, we are scientific, etc., you know. You don't have to be. By scientific, we mean that we, as we employ reasoning, then it's okay. We employ reasoning in a different way. Science employs reasoning to arrive at what they do not understand, what they do not see. Vedanta employs reasoning to understand what we see, because Upanisha reveals the reality, which is, you are a Brahman. So we don't ask, how I, I can be Brahman? Science will ask, what do you mean I am Brahman? How can I be Brahman? So that means science, science. What is Vedanta? says, I am Brahman. Let me see in what way I understand I am Brahman. You understand the difference? An inductive and deductive. The are two kinds of reasonings are there. One is to arrive at what you do not understand from what you see, other is to arrive at what is already said to understand what he said. So Vedantin doesn't ask, how can I be Brahman? You know what does Vedanta say? Oh, the scripture says I'm Brahman. My mind says I'm not Brahman. So scientists say, My mind says I'm not Brahman, and I I I I, I, I dismiss scripture. I say that scripture says I am not I'm Brahman. My mind says I'm not Brahman that I question my mind. So who do you question? A then questions his conclusions. A scientist, you know, arrives at his conclusion, so he does not question, I mean, he, he, he he questions his, you know, he questions what is told him. And arrives at his own conclusion, here we do not question what we are told, and we use our intellect to understand what is being told. To understand how I am Brahman. To understand how everything is Brahman. So Swami used to say, Ishwara is not to be believed. Ishwara is to be understood. You don't believe that is, So just says that is Ishvara. And what is Ishwara? No question of belief. Understand. How can this be Ishwara? Then you need to understand. And so the method of reasoning for science and Vedanta is different. And so uh, that Vedanta is scientific, you don't have to say that. Like Hindus are always apologetic. No, no, we are also like you, you know. So the Christians and Jews and they always, you know. So their attitude is always a bullying attitude. So these are no, 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 we are also like you, you know, we also will... Why do you have to say that? No, we don't believe. You don't worship murti. We also worship one God. You worship murti. Hinduism is worshiping murtis. Who says we are not worshiping? We are doing it. When are all these temples? What are you worshiping? God in that form. We see God here, not see, it is there. Because we, we do this pranapatiṣṭhā, ceremony of infusing life in there, so we, see that we, we believe there is God in there. So when you go to temple, Tirupati, you don't say that this, you you, 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 you worship Him as He is there. Then you have a choice to worship something, I mean you can use that different kind of upāsana there. But immediate thing is, you worship God in that form. Then you can grow further and worship the concept that that represents and grow further and see that it is your own self, that's okay. Meaning that just because they worship God in this form doesn't mean the final way. is it's a, it's a stepping stone, but not that we don't do that. We do it, and that is where that's the uniqueness of Hinduism. That it, 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 it is available for everybody, because when you when the transcendental God is there, when will you ever grow to that point? So, immanent God is also there. Anyway, what I'm saying is that. Uh, such inferiority complex is created, you know, and therefore we always feel really the need to be validated by others and things like that, you know. Whatever. So, Pratyaksha and Paroksha. <clears throat> so, this is a two ways, two forms of knowledge. Both of them are centered upon the objective world, understand? Pratyaksha, perception is all centered upon the objective world. Paroksha, inference. Indirect knowledge also is only based on direct knowledge. Inference is based on perception. You perceive something, like smoke, and then infer the fire. So ultimately all objective knowledge has its basis in perception. (coughs) So what can be perceived? Because the basis of arriving at conclusion of what is so then, so there are these objects in the world. There is a reality which is objective reality. And you require perception and inference for that. But there is another reality which is neither percept, which is neither perception, meaning which cannot be objective in our sense organs, nor paroksha, which is away from you, indirect. There is another reality. What is that reality? There is a the self. <coughs> self means you. It's not protection. You can't perceive yourself. It's very perceiver. The perceiver cannot be perceived. Nor can infer because inference requires perception as the basis. When you cannot perceive the self, you can infer about it also, isn't it? Inference always is based on perception. The self. Or I can never become the object of perception. What can you perceive? What we can objectify by senses can become the object of perception. So, my organ of hearing can objectify sound, so we can perceive. Eyes can objectify colors and forms, we can perceive. But they can never objectify the objectifier, you know. Our, our Swamiji's uh, famous story, of how many years ago, when Swami was conducting talk, a series of talks on self-knowledge at Stanford University. And Swami's style being what it is, you know, he'll, he'll conclude the talk with some point, you know, where it leaves some curiosity in the people. So he spent the whole first evening telling them, you know, uh, truth, etc., and then finally he said, I'll define truth. So I'll define satyam. And that's when I was concluded, what is there when you come tomorrow? So then, I uh, mean, uh, this has all kinds of scientists and professors hearing, and somebody was very restless, so he came to Swami again. So you said that, you you said that you'll define truth? He says, yes. How can you define truth? Truth defined is truth defiled. You cannot define. So to come tomorrow. No, no, I want to say, if I tell you now, you won't come tomorrow. So come tomorrow. No, no, I will come tomorrow. Tell me what it is. How do you define truth? How does Vedanta define truth? What is satyam? Avaditam satyam. That which cannot be negated is truth. Oh, that is flavour guest. Oh. That there can be a definition of satyam, abhaditam, satyam, what cannot be negated is truth. He went home, comes back next evening, before the lecture. The Swamiji said, yes, I could not sleep the whole last night. What happened? I've been just deliberating, dwelling upon that. You say, the truth, you define truth, all right. That is, cannot be negated. But there is no such thing that cannot be. Everything can be negated. So where is truth? Come to, come to the class. I will come to the class. Help me. Says, the negator cannot be negated. So one who negates, for negating you require yourself. The one who negates cannot be negated. So that's how That's a famous statement of the Upanishads also. Vignātāram hai ke vijāniyāt. Say, say jagna to Maitrey. Hey Maitrey, vignātāram ke vijāniyāt. By what means can you know the knower? So, na dhistāram pasye You cannot see the dhistā, the seer. You can't see the seer. So this is where we require the unfoldment of the scriptures by the teacher. So then the self falls in different category. The self is neither pratyeksa, meaning that he is not perceptible, nor paroksha, not inferable. Then what is self? So another word, aparoksha. Aparoksha means that he is not paroksha. Paroksha is that he is not perceptible. But paroksha presupposes something that is different from me, away from me, remote. So pratyaksha is what is evident. Perception is what is evident. Paroksha is what is remote. Indirect what is remote? What is not in front of me and what is not remote, there is something like that also. Nobody thinks about that. So Vedanta... De- You know Vedanta addresses itself to that. Science always talks about pratyaksha and paroksha, what is evident
0: and what is not evident.
1: Vedanta talks about aparoksha. Pratyaksha is what can be objectified. The self cannot be objectified, so cannot be pratyaksha or perceptible. Paroksha is what is remote, away from me. Self is not away from me, it's my own self, that will it can be paroksha also. So self being what it is, can neither be protection nor paroksha. Then what is it, a production. A term, a paroksha. What is Aparoksha? A means my very self. A means the self. You follow? Protection means what is objective? Paroksha also is the objective. Aparoksha is the Self. Aparoksha anubhūti. So anubhūti generally means experience. So aparoksha sya anubhūti, aparoksha anubhūti. The experience of the aparoksha is called aparoksha anubhūti. If aparoksha is Self, Experience of self is a paroksana Now that also creates problem. What happens is any term that you use will have some difficulty. Whatever term we use, all the terms come from our experience in duality, understand. The whole language is developed from our day-to-day experiences. All the words are all derived from our experiences and all experiences are in the realm of duality. But the experiencer is different from what is experienced. The experiencer is different from what is experienced. From that setup, all our terminology, all our languages evolved. is is not so. Therefore, there is no word. They can deal with something that is beyond this duality, that transcends the duality. So there is something also that transcends this duality of the experiencer and experienced. There is something that does not fall in either of the category. You cannot call it experienced because what is experienced normally is different from me. Experiencer also is a role that the self takes. So there is something that cannot, that does not fall in the category of experienced or experiencer. So all the, any, any word that you use. Knowledge, for example, is another word. But by knowledge also we generally understand that it involves the duality between the known and the knower. Is it not so? Even knowledge, as we understand, in our day-to-day language is that which always involves a in knower. There can be knowledge without the knower. So knowledge presupposes the knower. Who is knower? Knower is the locus of the act of knowing. The er comes, you know, er, driver. Who is driver? driver is the ashraya or locus of the action of driving. A cooker or cook, that goes away, I cook. Is he? So that, that the cooker, so that also happens. So uh, in English also you have this kind of a thing. So uh, when the pratya comes, the suffix comes and goes away. In Sanskrit of course it happens. But here also it happens. So, the one who is the locus of the act of cooking. Teacher, one who is the locus of the act of teaching. So, Ar Pratyaya when it comes, that is the locus of an action. Then you use Ar. So, Knower. Who is Knower? Knower is the locus of the act of knowing. The agent of knowing. Are always means agent. Agent of the locus. Is of the act of driving, agent of the act of cooking, agent of the act of teaching. So also, the agent of the act of knowing, that's knower. Who knows something that's different from himself, herself, whatever. So every, whatever word we use has a connotation. Because the meaning, all these words are used in our day-to-day language. And therefore, all the words will always involve duality. Every word is known always in reference to some other word. Everything is known in reference to something else. There is nothing absolute. So good with reference to bad. Happiness with happiness and happiness. So there is always something with reference. There is a counterpart. Pratyogi they call it. So they always there. But what about something that doesn't have a we don't have any... Our language cannot deal with that, you follow? Our mind doesn't deal with that. When we say language means our mind, our mind only deals with this, relative things. So everything that we know is relative in relation to something else. What about something that is not relative? That exists on its own. Everything exists because of something else. Everything that we know or experience exists because of something else. Whatever something that exists on its own, which does not require anything else for it to exist. A pot, for example, requires clay for it to exist. And clay requires earth for it to exist. Earth requires atoms and molecules and subatomic particles and whatever. So, the thing is, whatever we know is always relative, it's because of something else. It always derives existence from something, it shines because of something. But what about that which exists on its own? What about that which shines on its own? There's no word for that, because we just, we never come across that. Therefore, whatever word we use, you'll relatively give up the conventional meaning, you follow? That's called call the conventional meaning, the uh, traditional meaning, the generally understood meaning. You need to rise above that. And therefore, no word will be sufficient to describe the Self. So knowledge, of course, is a good word, self-knowledge, self-realization, so people use different words to try to grapple with that, self-knowledge, self-realization experience of self. But none of these words will apply in primary sense, understand? Because realizing also involves some realizer and what is realized. Experience also involves experiencer and experienced. Know also involves a knower and the known. So each one has a contribution to make. The word knowledge also contributes something. Experience also contributes something. Realization also contributes something. So, if you use million words, then perhaps you'll get you come to a real understanding. You follow? The point is, therefore, people have preferences for different words. Our Swami, you always use the word knowledge. He never liked experience. Didn't like realization. You know, because. The connotation that those experiences always involve some feeling and something. So some duality is always involved there. Basically, Swami's point always was that experience you have, it does not mean that you understand what you are experiencing. So understanding what you are experiencing is important. So knowledge involves understanding. Experience generally involves some kind of a sensations, you know, some kind of a feeling, whereas knowledge involves understanding. So here really you require both, You require experience and knowledge. Experience, because knowledge can be of what you experience. There were ex- knowledge, understanding of what you experience. <coughs> so in that sense, we can understand bhuti as he, immediate or direct perception or understanding of the Self, which is Aparoksha, which is my own Self. So, even scriptures also, to convey this, sometimes they use more than one word. Yes, sakshad, Aparoksha, Brahma. Open it. yet sakshad, Aparoksha, Brahma. So two words are used, sakshad and Aparoksha, or apuroksham. Because, the nyayakas, you know, the logicians say, they thought aparoksha was something very immediate. So immediately know as aparoksha. So this I perceive that's called aparoksha jnana for them. All the thoughts in my mind also I know immediately aparoksha jnana. <coughs> but that aparoksha jnana also is not really, it also involves also the knower and known. So sakshad aparoksha. Aparoksha immediate, Sakshat, without any intervention. See, in all knowledge there is some intervention. Meaning that either a sense organ is involved, mind is involved in all knowledge. Saksha at means what? A knowledge that does not involve any intervention, which is yourself. So, in some way, aparoksha means the self. But amounts to self, put it this way. And anubhava, experience, knowledge, realization, direct perception, understanding, etc., you know. You know, they're intimidated by these words, you know, realization, experience, and, you know, we get intimidated. And it may be intimidating also, but then as far as self is concerned, we need not get intim- intimidated at all. You know why? Because self or the I is always experienced. As far as what is other than I is concerned, the experience requires creating a certain situation when experience can happen. Because everything other than I is what we call jaram paraprakashyam, meaning that it is inert in sensual endeavor does not shine on its own. So to eliminate something to know. Right now, for example, your organ of hearing is to eliminate these words for you to know them. Your organ of hearing, so consciousness with the mind, an organ of hearing had to eliminate these words for you to perceive these words. If something is missing, mind is not there, the words don't get illumined, they may fall in the ear, or illumined, then you don't know them. So how do you know things? When we illumine them. How do you know the forms and colors? When we illumine them. When consciousness illumines them. How does consciousness illumine the names and forms? Consciousness first illumines or enlivens the mind, then the mind, in turn, illumines or enlivens the sense-organ. And that, in turn, illumines the object. So, anything is known only when it is eliminated by consciousness, understand. Eyes also are illumined because of mind, and mind is illumined because of consciousness. So ultimately, ultimate illuminated is consciousness. So consciousness requires the steps to eliminate the objects, the cross objects of the world. Because they cannot shine on their own. They are not self-revealing. They are not self-illumined. And therefore we will illuminate them. Like all, all of us here we have to illuminate by this light. There's no light, then we can't see anything. Because we are not self-shining. There is a lamp here, then it doesn't require it because it's self-shining. But we are not self-shining, so what is not self-shining? This will the limit. The whole universe falls in that category. Who is living the universe? The consciousness. Who is the consciousness? The self is the consciousness. That's the only self-illumining, self-revealing. bhantam anubhati sarvam. It shines, everything shines after. What about the self itself? Does it need to be a limit? So something can become the object of experience when it is a limit. So this object like a part can become an object of experience when it is a limit. Listen, don't read right now. Right now do not read, listen. Okay. We will come to the text, don't worry. So this object can become the object of my experience only when it is illumined. How is it illumined? By consciousness, which first illumines the mind, then illumines the sense organs, and through that illumines this object that is part. So in the normal, in the day to day life, something can become the object of experience when it is illumined by consciousness, because nothing has the capability to illumine itself. Therefore, everything depends upon the consciousness to illumine them. So that's one kind of experience, one kind of knowledge of those which are illuminated. But how about the one that illumines itself? How about the self? Is consciousness, self even illuminating So if this part can become the uptake my experience will illuminate. How about consciousness, which does not require to be eliminated? What do you need to experience that? Tell me. To experience a part, you need to eliminate that. Because there is no is self-illuminating. It is not self-illuminating. In Vedanta we call it jadam. Paraprakashyam. Illumined by something else. What about consciousness? Always eliminate, always revealing. So what do we need to experience consciousness, tell me? For experiencing thought, you need something. we need? This organ of perception. We need the mind. But for experiencing consciousness, what do we need? For experiencing thought, you need to eliminate the part. Where consciousness illumines a part. How about experiencing consciousness itself, which is self-revealing, self-illuminating? What do we need to do to experience consciousness? What do we need to do to experience consciousness? I'm right now experiencing this part, but. If the part is not illumined, I can't experience it, you follow? So I cannot experience that which is not illumined, I can experience that which is illumined. How about consciousness? In what category does it fall? It is always illumined. What does it mean? It is always experienced, you follow? What is illumined is experienced. Consciousness is always illumined, it is always experienced, is it not so? Do you know that you are there? Do you know? Are you sure? Are you there? Yes, I am there. How do you know? I know I am there. Are you there? Yes. No, let me see whether I am there or not. Do I need to touch, scratch? Let me think. Do I need to think to know if I am? Or scratch? Or do something? Whether I am awake, whether I, am, whether I exist or not, whether I am awake, I may need to do something. Where I am, I may need to do something. But that I am, does it require? Any effort requires you to see, hear, feel? No. Hearing, knowing can take place, you are there in the first place. When can I see? Provided I am there. When can I think? When I am there. So then, how do I know that I am? You no, know, why? Because that's my nature. So I am is what self-revealing. I am in the existence. What is the existence? Self-revealing. What is consciousness? Self-existent. Because I am, I, Hamasmi, sadhāvāmi, I am always shine. I always love myself. They're all self-revealing things. Existence is self-revealing. I exist, self-revealing. I shine, self-existing. And that I exist, I shine is all complete because that's the object of love. Brahma Viva Amata Siddhām as a teacher says, Satchidāyānla from Brahma. I am, it's very evident that I am Brahman Satchidānanda. Because I I always am, always shine, always love myself. That is, I am Ananda. Then what do I need? I am Satchidāyānla. So understand that the consciousness of self is always experienced. Otherwise nothing can be experienced. Any other experience can take place provided the self is experienced. Anything can shine, provided the self shines. So what is anubhava? What is the experience? My self is always experience. You don't know. Means right now I am experiencing. I know the self. Don't you know yourself? Who are you? I am so and so. I, in some way I know myself. Is it not so? So understand that self-knowledge is always there. Self-experience also is always there and self-knowledge also is always there. You follow that? If you don't know yourself, you can't know anything. So what are we doing, Swamiji? What are we doing here? What does Vedanta do? Vedanta does not create an experience of the self that doesn't create, doesn't have to create experience of self. Doesn't have to create the knowledge of self. It's there. Had it not been there, I would never know it. It would never matter to me. One thing we should know, that what can possibly matter in our life, is what we experience. That alone can become the object of concern. We don't experience, never becomes an object of concern. You follow that? What becomes an object of concern is what I experience. What I want to know, hey, I want to know this, provide you some kind of experience a general, and this knowledge is there. That's what Vedanta says. That only when you become aware of that rope, that there can be a superimposition of snake. The rope-snake example, when do you have the delusion of snake? When you have the error of snake, provided you become aware of the rope. In the pitch darkness, you don't become aware of the rope. There cannot be even misunderstanding a rope. You follow? So, problem in our life is not lack of experience of self, understand. It's not lack of knowledge of self. What's the problem? It is the wrong understanding of the self. It is not lack of perception, it is misperception that's the problem. If I never perceive the I would be happy. Because that which I am not conscious of cannot make me unhappy. What can make me unhappy? What I am conscious of. The rope can make me unhappy by a misperception of snake only when I am conscious of the rope. Even the pitch darkness, I do not see the rope, there will be no misapprehension of snake, there will be no fear, no problem. You follow that? The problems in your life are only because of self-consciousness. All problems arise only from consciousness. When I become conscious of something, then the problem is there. Then I get the news that so-and-so, this person died. Then I become miserable. Otherwise you know. nothing happens to me. So it's only knowledge that can create the problem. It's a knowledge that can solve the problem also. So that is where Swami would say that you are the problem and you are the solution. Meaning that you who is wrongly known become the problem. You are the problem to yourself. How, by a wrong perception of myself, wrong conclusions, or notions, or complexes, I become problem to myself. So, what does Vedanta do? Vedanta simply what the true nature of self is, thereby removing complex, removing ignorance. So, Vedanta removes ignorance. It is ignorance. That causes a problem. Vedanta doesn't create knowledge. What does it do? Music ignorance. Because knowledge is there. Humus
0: ignorance.
1: So how does Vedanta teach? Nathinathi teach. Say, not this, not this, not this. And therefore, don't worry about experience. So don't get intimidated by the self-experience. It's always there. Self-knowledge always there. And therefore, take comfort in this matter that we always have self-experience, always have self-knowledge. What do we need to do? We need to only remove the ignorance. Along with the knowledge, ignorance also is there, superimposition also is there, adhyasa is also there, misapprehension is there, wrong conclusions are there, and they have to remove removed, that's all. So whatever knowledge I have right now, From that knowledge, I should only remove the ignorance part or the false part, that's all. You understand? Not that to create the self-knowledge or self-experience, I cannot create. How can you create experience of something, you know, you can't create. It has to be there for you to experience it. Therefore, relax. And be comfortable about because this word, Apravakshana and people talk in such mysterious language that you really get, you know. When you go to the meeting, they talk in such mysterious language. Nam, nam, Naam, Gupanam, and such, such, you know, the words they use are, wow, what is it? No, become transcend the name, transcend this, transcend, how do you transcend? I don't know. So, (laughs) therefore, Vedanta is very simple. Everything else is very complicated. This is very simple. All you need to do is to let go. That's why life is always tyāga ne kya tyāga, by renunciation, by letting go of what is false, then they attain immortality. So tyāga is required, given to the false. But then you have to know this is false. Then you give up, if you can give up. So that's where also the problem comes. First is, no you know, false is false and secondly, let it go. There were the two aspects of that. One is understanding right is right and false is false. That is the, the work of interact. And second, let go of what is false because I am so strongly attached to that. Because I always thought it was right, and I always thought it was self, and so, so much attached to that. So then, that second process of letting go, that is really sadhana, you know, that's a big thing. And so, anyways, the so two aspects are there, and both of them will be talked about in Aparoksha Anubhuti. So, Aparoksha text talks about the self, because self. Anubhuti is a true understanding. Right now, we are understanding, create true understanding. We experience, well, create an experience which is a complete, true understanding. <coughs> in experience also, self and non-self both are involved. So in knowledge or self and non-self both are involved. So we will remove what is not-self from experience and therefore from knowledge. Both of them take
0: place. So that is the Purukshana Gurudev. That's the text that we plan to study during these days. So <coughs> Om Purnamadha Purnamidham Purnam Purnamudachyade Purnasya Purnamadha Purname Vavasishyade Om Shanti Shanti, Shanti, Shanti Shankaram shankaracharyam Keshavam Badarayam Sutra Bhashya Rudho Vande Bhagavanta Upanath Puna Ishvaro Guru Murti Veda Vibhagine Vyoma Vatvyaptane Haya Dakshinamurthaye Namah Om Shantisha this is the